Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan said during his State of the City address this week that black developers are investing more than $500 million in building Detroit's future. Today, we'll talk with a member of his executive staff about the details and how this matters for Detroiters and their communities. Then we'll talk with Hamilton producer Jeffrey Seller, a native Detroiter, about the return of live theater and the influence he's had over Broadway for many years. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So we heard Mayor Mike Duggan, the mayor of the city of Detroit, during this week's State of the City speech list a lot of new investments by black developers here in the city. That includes a new plan to redevelop the Fisher Body Plant, which sits right next to the intersection of I-94 and I-75. It is one of Detroit's most notorious symbols of blight and industrial abandonment. It has sat there for at least two decades now as an empty, rotting hulk. And city officials say the effort to turn that site into attractive mixed-income housing is the largest African-American-led development project in the city's history. The mayor also detailed lots of other developments, large and small, on the east and west and southwest sides of the city that are being led by black developers. And let me say this, as somebody who pays pretty close attention to the things that are going on in the city and development. There were a lot of plans and projects that the mayor talked about that, frankly, I hadn't heard about, that I didn't know about. And I don't imagine that I was sitting there as the only person watching in a little bit of astonishment. Now, let's be clear. We hear lots about development in the city of Detroit all the time. We hear about great plans to redevelop areas of the city, and they don't always pan out. Or they pan out for some folks and not for others. We do have this incredible gap in our city between those who seem to be grasping the benefits of the things that are happening, and those who feel left behind. So the question with all of the things that the mayor was talking about, the real question is, will this benefit Detroiters? Will this benefit Detroiters' communities, the places where we live, the places where we recreate, the places where we work? 
They're fair questions. And I don't think we can be blamed for having just a little skepticism about these plans. All pretty on boards and on television, but what will they be like? How will they affect the things that we most need changed in our city? Here to talk about all of these efforts and a number of the other projects led by African Americans in the city is Nicole Sherrard Freeman. She is the City of Detroit's Group Executive of Jobs, Economy, and Detroit at Work. Nicole, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen, and thanks so much for having me. So I want to start with hearing just a little of the mayor's speech and the part specifically where he's talking about this incredible amount of investment by black developers. These owners are investing more than $500 million in Detroit's future. From one end of the city to another, black developers with black ownership are rebuilding the city. Uh, The mayor's office tells us, Nicole, that you played a key role in the Fisher Body Plant Redevelopment Plan. Let's start there. Fill us in on what developers want to do with that site and how significant you think it is. Stephen, that um, while the mayor's office did play uh, a lead role in this development, we were, of course, supported by so many others across the administration and our partners at Detroit Economic Growth Corporation. Um, we, We couldn't be more excited about Greg Jackson and Richard Hosey and their plans for Fisher Body. I mean, we've we've been looking at this structure since uh, standing vacant since uh, the late 80s. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always, I mean, you can't help but notice it uh, when you drive by the intersection of I-94 and, and I-75 and that they were, first of all, willing to take it on uh, and second, uh, taking it on with uh, an eye toward preservation. I mean, if you've, if you've heard them talk about the structure of the mm-hmm. building at all, it's in fantastic shape uh, on the inside as it relates to turning it into more than 400 uh, apartments with retail space on the, on the first floor. It's just it's a it's a remarkable plan and it helps preserve some of Detroit's history. So, um, as I said in the open, I think we get excited in Detroit about big projects like this. And this is one of the biggest, no question, that uh, that we've we've heard about. And I think just symbolically uh, taking that structure at that site, as you point out, at that, at that super busy intersection, everybody drives past there at some point and can't help but notice that this, you know, really massive um, footprint is in, is in bad shape. But then the question is always, um, how, how strongly should we believe that these things will happen? I mean, we, we've seen plans announced in Detroit before that haven't come to be true. And then the question is, what impact does that have on the problems that Detroiters face all the time, every day in their lives? And, and I, I mean that both as just kind of a challenge to, to you and the administration, but also just as an opportunity to draw the connections, which I don't know that we, we can always 
immediately identify those of us who are not in city government or or not developers ourselves why does this matter in substantive terms to those of us who live here sure so let's start with your point Stephen, about skepticism i mean i think detroit is one of the most balanced uh and can be among the fairest but is the most among the most uh, full of the most critical thinkers um, I know. And so that the, the skepticism that you're speaking of, I think, is both um, natural uh, and given, as you've said, and as your listeners know, so many past projects warranted. But let me tell you how this is different. Um, so b- before anybody comes forward, certainly before Greg Jackson his daughter Annika and Richard came forward with this project, you got to know that they did their due diligence to understand what they were stepping into uh, in Fisher Body 21. They spent time doing the environmental work on the front end to first understand whether the prior reports about Fisher Body 21, those reports that said there is no saving this building, it Mm -hmm. has to come down. Um, You got to know that they did a significant amount of due diligence before deciding for themselves, before coming forward to the city with a plan that they believed would make this work. They consulted with architects and engineers, certainly talked to the the folks on their team and and beyond who would be financing this. And, you know, as as Greg mentioned in uh, in the announcement earlier this week, part of what's financing this is his own his own equity and so i I think what what listeners what what i hope listeners will think about and what i what i hope will start to turn our attention to more broadly um as we talk about these projects and what african americans are bringing forward is this nobody's going to come forward with a deal uh for the for the show right for the glitz and the glam and the cameras and risk the embarrassment uh, of having a project fall through. I think your listeners and others, Stephen, are more critical consumers um, of news, and developers know that. So nobody's going to come forward with, with you know, an, an idea or a plan that's later going to cause them great embarrassment. And then as it relates to the problems that Detroiters face every day and what connections does this project have to opportunity in the neighborhood, this isn't just about um, the housing, the 435 units in this $135 million investment, but it's also about the retail and commercial space that uh, the developers are putting on the first floor uh, and beyond. And it's what, it, you know, it's also about what it'll do uh, in that community. I mean, I went to elementary school just a few blocks uh, um, down East Grand Boulevard, and, you know, I've, I've watched that neighborhood uh, and what has happened over the past few decades. And, and this is going to represent a huge opportunity for the spin-off benefits of having uh, affordable housing, uh, uh, good, solid, beautiful um, housing and views of the, of the city from the roof. I mean, what this will do for the neighborhood is, is really, Stephen, unparalleled. And what's the time frame for this project in in particular i mean again it seems so massive uh at least from the outside it seems uh, daunting and and i i would love to have you talk just a little more about 
the condition you you've suggested that the condition is is maybe not as bad inside uh, as it appears from the outside but but how soon could detroiters look forward to this opening up and welcoming new residents yeah, so I will. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the the projections that Greg and and Richard and Annika shared earlier this week. But ultimately, I you know leave leave those uh, uh, the finalities of that timeline to the developers. But you know, as I mentioned, they are already uh, moving forward with the uh, environmental work and the the structural assessment. So while Detroiters can't see that part of the work happening yet. It's the part that happens. It's the part of the work that happens that, you know, you got to do to be sure that this ultimately this structure is sound and safe and can architecturally and structurally sustain what they're going to put in it. So that work, while it's invisible, that work is happening right now. Um, later this year, uh, you'll start to see more movement uh, on the site uh, and then into next year, start to see more significant work around uh, the rehab that's happening there. Uh, I'm talking with Nicole Sherrard Freeman, who is Mayor Mike Duggan's group executive of Jobs, Economy, and Detroit at Work. We're talking about the Mayor's State of the City address this week, in which he laid out uh, a number of different pretty ambitious development plans, $500 million worth that he says are led by black developers and owners. That's a really important turn, I think, in the narrative around redevelopment here in Detroit. Uh, it, it speaks to the efforts toward uh, inclusion. It speaks toward the efforts uh, aimed at lifting Detroiters themselves uh, as the city gets better and more more popular. Uh, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about what the mayor said. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic uh, about the city of Detroit's future? Uh, or are you maybe somewhere in between? Uh, do you trust that these big redevelopment projects like Fisher will be successful? And what do you make of the increase in black-led development projects here in the city? What does that signal to you about inclusiveness. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, uh, my friend uh, Chase Cantrell, who is one of the developers here uh, in Detroit, is on Twitter asking about subsidy here in Detroit. All of us who are familiar with development in Detroit know it's, it's very difficult to make the numbers work still uh, in the city. Uh, if, you, if you just wanna take a building, uh, redevelop it and, and open it for business, uh, we, we still need a lot of government help for developers in that, uh, in that regard. Um, so what needs to happen, he, he's asking in Detroit, to reduce that need? And I wonder if you can speak to the level of subsidy, for instance, that is involved in something like, uh, like the Fisher, the, the Fisher uh, renovation. Sure. So, you know, again, we, we should uh, leave speaking to the final numbers to uh, Greg Jackson and, and Richard Hosey, but I can say broadly that what uh, our partners at Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, who actually uh, lead the underwriting uh, on this work. So what uh, Kenyatta Bridges and, and Kevin Johnson are doing are, are working through with Greg and Richard. Um, what, what, where are the opportunities, uh, as Mr. Cantrell asks, to be sure that um, we are using public funding 
uh, in the right way, helping uh, developers uh, close gaps where it makes sense uh, for public uh, incentives. Um, you know, we're, we're expecting that, you know, there will be uh, um, a, a historic tax credit uh, potentially on this building, um, the uh, uh, neighborhood enterprise zone, uh, among others. I mean, we, we haven't talked with city council about any of this, so I, you know, don't want to go into any of the, any, any more details on this without talking to our partners, but um, we are expecting to, where it makes sense, um, use uh, incentives to help this, to help this work develop. I mean, w- when you look across the whole of what developers are doing in the city, and specifically black developers, as you're calling out, um, we've got to be sure that we are supporting black developers who are taking on these massive, monstrous, complex projects in the same way that we support other developers where that makes sense and where they are um, willing to engage in the community benefits process. I mean, you know, Fisher Body 21, the size of the investment, $135 million, will trigger uh, the community benefits ordinance. And when you talk with Greg and Richard about it, uh, you know, you, you find that they are eager to talk with residents about uh, what, this, what this development will mean in the community. Uh, and where a project triggers the community benefits ordinance, you can expect that from any other developer. Uh, and there are cases where the investment, the size of the investment on the project, does not trigger the community benefits ordinance. And i got to tell you, we've got developers who want to have conversations with the community and do what's right for the community, whether there's a community benefits ordinance or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. 313-577-1019. Uh, before we get to, to callers, uh, Nicole, I do want to talk about this larger blight elimination uh, goal that the, that the mayor has. And uh, that is, of course, focused on the, the communities where we as Detroiters live more than than where we where we work um is it realistically is it realistic to think that we're going to actually get to zero blight as the mayor said i thought that was a pretty bold statement to throw out there Uh, it's not the first time he's hinted at it uh the idea that we won't have any blight in the city of detroit talk just a little about uh how how close you think we can come to that yeah so you know I'll, i'll start here um Eight years ago, uh, anybody who suggested that we'd be attacking these, you know, 11 major projects that had for decades um, been an embarrassment to the city, anyone who suggested that eight years later uh, we'd be at this point um, would have been laughed out of the room. That was a pretty audacious goal then, uh, pretty bold. And so this goal too is bold and you know i got to tell you the you know with the american rescue plan act funding uh our partners on city council who are you know eager to have us come forward and work with us on plans that eliminate blight as the mayor as the mayor described the the strength of the administration and you know, Brad Dick, Group Executive Brad Dick and Group Executive Donald Wrencher and their teams and our partners. I mean, we are, we are, um, 
I don't know if there's a, if there's an adjective to describe this, so intensely focused on moving mm. the city and the narrative from blight to beauty that uh, I imagine we we will hit the targets we I will ima- I imagine we'll hit the targets we set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to get a couple phone calls in here before we have to break. Uh, let's start with Sam in Detroit. Sam, what's on your mind? Hi, good morning. Um, my question is, uh, it looks like a very nice uh, ambition plan. I'm very optimistic. But my concern is what kind of communications the city will use to make sure that the benefit of these plans will be introduced to other minorities, especially the Middle Eastern and the growing Afghani community? Because my personal experience that the city is not doing a good job, especially when you visit Detroit at work centers, you see posters and flyers about West uh, Warren development in Arabic. I read it. It was very embarrassing, not appropriately translated, given mm. the bad impression that the city does not care about other minorities to communicate with them about their own language in an appropriate, appropriate way. So mm. hopefully this is one-time mistake, not a trend. And I wanted to hear the comment about this. Yeah, Thank you. Sam, I'm I'm really glad you called and and pointed that out. And and Nicole, of course, this is a this is a really diverse city. It is a majority African American city, and and it's important that African Americans participate more in opportunity and the economy. But we have lots of other ethnic uh, ethnic backgrounds, people from other af- ethnic backgrounds here, and. They feel left out too, and and as Sam's pointing out, uh, in some cases the effort to reach out is not uh, is not sufficient. Yeah, look, I, I first of all, uh, Sam, thank you for your call and your comments. And um, you know, Stephen, I don't I don't know if there's a way to get information offline on the on the translation that that he's talking about. We would never want to uh, translate any of our communications in a way that is embarrassing, incorrect, inaccurate. So. The problem you just lifted up, Sam, we, we want to know about and fix. So I, I love the details of that offline. Yeah, we can connect but you too. Yeah. That would be great. That would be great. But 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 let me speak to the to the broader question and concern. I mean, we you know, we we uh, our civil our civil rights inclusion and opportunity department led by Kim Rustam uh, translates, has the responsibility for translating our communications into Spanish and Arabic and Bengali. And um, but but even with that, we fully recognize that our efforts um, are, are probably still missing the mark. I mean, clearly, as Sam said, so we've got to do a better job on that front and we've got to do a better job uh, telling our stories. You know, our, our communications team led by Vicki Thomas and John Roach, I mean, they 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 work hard to get stories out. But, you know, as you said at the open, Stephen, you sat there watching State of the City, amazed at what you were seeing because you hadn't heard the stories. We've, we've got to do a better job of uh, ensuring uh, that our uh, community knows what's happening, and we're going to work closely with city council to do that. Yeah. Okay, uh, Nicole Sherard Freeman, uh, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to explain uh, all these ambitious plans in Mayor Mike Duggan's uh, State of the City address. And, of course, we all are wishing uh, the best for, for, for all of that and, and for us here in the city. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for having me. Coming up next, we are going to talk with Broadway icon and hometown Metro Detroiter Jeffrey Seller 
about his experience helping to create the beloved musical Hamilton, the return of live theater after the pandemic, and this profound influence that Jeffrey has had on Broadway over many, many years. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Alexander Hamilton. By now, almost everyone in the English-speaking world knows that name and knows a little bit about that historical figure, not because of the work he did helping to build our nation several centuries ago, but because of the musical Hamilton, which shook the culture and broke people open to a new form of creativity, music, even to new ways of expression. Since it debuted in uh, 2015, it has gained incredible accolades and launched the careers of many people we had never heard of really before. The most obvious example, of course, is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created this uh, phenomenon and uh, who is now a household name. Hamilton is returning to Detroit this November and December at the Fisher Theater, and that is part of the rebirth, I guess, of of live theater after the pandemic. Think of the last time you went and sat in a theater with your community and watched a play or a musical. It has been so long for all of us because of COVID-19. Here to talk about the return of Hamilton to Detroit, its meteoric rise, and the return of live theater nationwide is Hamilton's producer and Oak Park native, Jeffrey Seller. Jeffrey, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen, and thank you. I'm listening to you, and I just got the chills from just the notion of being able to go to the Fisher Theater, walk (laughs) through the gorgeous arcade at the Fisher Building, and walk into those golden seats and um, watch a show at the holidays, which (laughs) I remember so well because I was 13 years old when my parents splurged to get tickets for Annie uh, so we could watch it over the holidays. So it's so great. Hamilton's coming this November, December. Yeah. How do you like that? that that's, <laughs> such a, that's such a wonderful reference because I, I, I assume that you and I are in the same general age group, uh, but, but that's, <laughs> such a, that's such a familiar reference for me. I remember uh, my school took uh, the entire third grade um, to to see Annie uh, at the Fisher that same year. Um, and, oh wow! And it, it was the it was the first Broadway show I ever saw, and it 
it completely changed the way I thought about that that form of expression. And I mean, it, it, it I think for those of us who grew up in Metro Detroit in the 70s and 80s, that that's a seminal moment for for this kind of uh, for this kind of art. So it's it's great to hear that. Uh, that it meant something to you too. Um, so Hamilton just, of course, blasted off into the culture and completely changed the culture, I think, uh, with with the, the many things it does and the many ways it kind of breaks conventions and, and reframes our thinking. And of course, that, that hasn't stopped. I want to just take a moment to, to have you talk about whether you expected all of this and whether you thought, you know, seven years later, uh, we would still be as excited to to sit and and watch this this incredible work of art on stage. I always have to confess, I don't know. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is, let's go back. Did I think rent would become the kind of socio-political entertainment phenomenon that it became in the 90s? No. I was friends with Jonathan Larson. He was working on his rock musical based on La Boheme in the East Village where AIDS um, replaced tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And I hoped it would play at a 300-seat theater downtown in the East Village somewhere. I had no idea that rent would rise to that level of cultural um, integration. And with Hamilton, I absolutely knew that it was of a quality that was um, in the stratosphere, but, and I knew it would have success. Did I know that it would become a national trust, if I can use that word? <laughs> and I'm only using that because I'm quoting former head of the National Endowment of the Arts, Rocco Landsman, who said to me in the first year of the show, well, it's a national trust. Everybody owns Hamilton, Jeffrey. Wow. Wow. And, and, and what he crazy. was saying, what he was saying is, it's all of our show. It's our story. And I think that um, if I had to put one word on its form and its function, I would say it's inclusiveness. That here we have the history of the founding of America through a um, function in which everybody's included, where black people, brown people, Asian Americans, everybody can look on that stage and see themselves and say, that's my story too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, that's I mean, that's a, a huge part. Uh, of the power it, it has in 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 the culture, um, I, I also want to pause just a sec and talk about this broader return of live theater and what that means, not just to Hamilton but to Broadway and and yes. and to all of us. Like I said in the open, you know, it's been two years since yes. any of us really could do this. It's it's like a, a piece of our lives that melted away. Um, and now, now we get to reform it in, in, some, in some way. Well, it's a cause for celebration and um, jubilation and elation. I myself 
was at um, the Broadway musical company last night with my partner, Josh, and my good friend, Cynthia O'Neill. And how wonderful was it to be able to sit in a theater again, surrounded by other theater goers, and watch these spectacular artists on stage bringing this show to life, and then being able to actually go out to dinner after um, and this was a date we postponed and we postponed and we postponed because for so long we couldn't even, we couldn't see the show. And then um, Omicron came, so we couldn't go to restaurants. And just now were we feeling safe enough to say, okay, let's go, let's do the whole experience. And you know what? Um, if I can use the cliche of Stephen Sondheim and his big song being alive from that show, being able to do all of these things makes us feel more alive again. Yeah. And I want to say that if we look back two years now in the first months of the um, pandemic, I did ask myself, is this a point of no return for- Right, is this over? Civilization? Yeah. Are we going to now are we beset now with these viruses and pathogens that are going to change the way we all live forever and put all of us in our isolated bubbles? And if so, I'm never my whole my whole uh, career, my avocation and my vocation will cease to exist because we won't be able to assemble anymore. And and I know I'm speaking right now in a doer way, but this is not an impossibility. And the um, perseverance and the hard work of so many people in our society has caused us to be able to go out now and go to those restaurants and go to those bars and go to the Super Bowl or the Michigan game or the DSO. And that's what makes me feel so alive when I can go to all those things. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jeffrey Seller, producer of Rent, Avenue Q, In the Heights, and, of course, uh, the beloved uh, musical Hamilton. We're talking about the return of live theater after the pandemic, the return of Hamilton to Detroit, which is going to happen in November and December, just in time for the holiday season. Uh, we're also talking about this profound influence that Jeffrey, who's a native Detroiter, has had over Broadway uh, over many years. Um, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us uh, how much you love uh, the musical Hamilton. Why? Uh, what does that musical mean to you? Uh, what did you draw from the many different things uh, it's doing while it's unfolding on stage, the many different ideas it is putting in front of us, uh, the conventions that it broke when it opened in uh, 2015? Uh, are you excited for the return of live theater now that the pandemic is at least more under control than it was when it started? Um, what are you looking forward to going to see? What theater is your favorite uh, here in, in Metro Detroit? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter. Uh, put your comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Let's go to the phones here. Eric, Eric Williams, a friend of the show in Detroit. Eric, what's up? Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. So 
Uh, I lived in New York for 20 years, and one of the biggest, you know, pleasures I had was going to Broadway and off-Broadway shows. And I had the, you know, good fortune to see the original cast of Hamilton. Uh, one of the things that makes Hamilton stand out so much is sort of the colorblind casting. Um, and last a month ago, I was in, uh, this is a friend of New York, and I went and saw Chicago. And when the uh, person playing uh, uh, Matron uh, Mama, uh, Mama Morton came out, my first thought was, oh, my God, this woman would make an amazing George Washington. So oh, wow. Afraid, <laughs> have, uh, have you ever considered, uh, you know, sort of cross-casting as far as gender as well? Um, to, and actually, the person is a native destroyer. So it was wow. actually which is why I remembered it stuck out. So I was just wondering what his thoughts are on that kind of development. <laughs> that is a really great question, Eric. Um, you know, Jeffrey, one of the things that, you know, I think that, that Hamilton, of course, has, has made a mark in doing is breaking those sort of stereotypical ideas that we have of who can play what role and, and what it means to become another character could could George Washington be played by a female actor? Um, thank you, Eric. And uh, I'm so curious what brought you back to Detroit, but I guess this, uh, 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 I'm, I'm not here to interview you, you're here to interview me. <laughs> but um, I just love the notion of a Detroiter going to New York for 20 years and coming back to Detroit. I hope that's all for good and, and positive reason to help rise the rise of Detroit. But um, you're bringing up a great point, And it is something in which um, we've had some discussions about it. I've had several uh, great friends, women friends who are uh, performers who have asked if they could try out for King George III. And um, uh, <laughs> there was another great Broadway actress who I asked her if she would ever consider doing Angelica Schuyler. And she said, no, but I'll consider Burr. And, wow. um, and I appreciated that. Here's the, um, the biggest question with regard to that. Um, the octaves of the voice and the keys of the songs. Sure. And um, a Broadway show sometimes will make a modification for an actor where they'll um, take a song up a half step or down a half step, but you can't, you can't redo the whole song for a different voice. So whether or not we would find a woman who could do the uh, bare tenor of Look at in tone, um, yeah. Washington, Washington, <laughs> Washington. <laughs> I, you know, the answer is I don't know. And I think that that conversation is alive and I think we're going to keep having it. And, and, you know, Hamilton's going to have a long life. So um, <laughs> I'm not ruling any possibilities out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Jeffrey Seller uh, about the return of Hamilton, the return of live theater and how theater has changed over the time that he's been working on Broadway. I want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to social media and put comments there, and we can include you. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Jeffrey Seller, 
who is a producer of Rent, Avenue Q, In the Heights, and Hamilton, all very large uh, Broadway hits. Uh, he's also a native Detroiter. We're talking about the return of live theater and the return of Hamilton. It's coming back to Detroit this fall, just in time for the holiday season. We want to hear from you about how excited you are about the return of Hamilton and the return of theater. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put, uh, and put comments there, and uh, we'll, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Jeffrey, I want to talk a little about uh, your career on, on Broadway. I mean, it's really at the intersection of a lot of incredible work, uh, Rent, Hamilton, uh, and now Tick, Tick, Boom, the last of you know, which which highlights uh, the life and work of Jonathan Larson. Can you talk more about Larson and what he meant to you? You you brought that up uh, a bit a bit earlier, but we didn't we didn't stop to to dive a little deeper into that. Yeah, um, with pleasure. When I was uh, twenty five, uh, I was working for um, a Broadway producer uh, named Barry and Fran Weisler, Broadway producers. And uh, I was a booker. I, I was responsible for booking the national tours, and um, and I was a you know a middle a middle manager, maybe a little less. And uh, I hated my job. I wanted to be a producer. Uh, I didn't know how to figure out how to make the leap from booking to producing. Uh, I had just broken up from a six year relationship. I was lonely. Um, I felt as a twenty five year old that I was a little bit at sea. And a friend invited me to come to see a rock monologue uh, that uh, later, of course, became Tick, Tick, Boom. It was called Boho Days. And uh, we went to this tiny performance space on the Upper West Side. There was a brick wall. There was a band set up. And I'm sitting in a 100-seat theater. And out comes this tall, lanky guy with curly uh, brown hair and big ears and um, a floppy hat. And he starts this show called Boho Days, which is all about his crisis as a 30-year-old composer of rock musicals that nobody wants to produce. Mm -hmm. And his crisis, should he stay with a girlfriend who he knows isn't right for him, but he's afraid of breaking up because he's afraid of being lonely. Um, and his crisis, which is, do I take a job at an advertising agency and become a copywriter so I can actually pay the rent every month and not live in an apartment in which the bathtub is really in the kitchen. And, um, and he's telling the story through a series of songs that is making the hair on my arm stand up. And his show, I felt like, how does this man know my story? And I've never met him before. And um, I was exhilarated. I was gutted. I was thrilled. I was crying. And um, after I saw the show, I was invited to a little party and I saw him with some people around him and I was a little shy about meeting him. So the next day I wrote him a letter and I said, my name is Jeffrey Seller. I want to be a producer and I want to produce your shows. And that was in 1990. And um, uh, though uh, I was a friend, Obviously, Lynn is my dear friend and gave him all the support I could, including I gave him a tape of Jonathan performing all of the original Boho days. And I seem to be the only one on earth who had one. Um, uh, 
I, I didn't have anything to do with the movie, except that um, after Jonathan and I met, we started talking about musicals and he wanted me to try to produce Tick, Tick, uh, Boho Days Off Broadway. And the first thing I said to him was, well, you should change the name to Tick, Tick, Boom, because that's the motif of the show. And, um, and he did. And the second thing I said is, you got to lose that opening number called Boho Days and write a new opening number. And then he wrote 3090, which is still the opening number of the show. So, um, uh, you know, Jonathan and I became friends in 1990. Uh, he was as passionate as I was about the American musical theater. He was even more critical than I was about the state of the American musical theater, in which he would say about the shows that were on Broadway then, which were primarily the British um, blockbusters, Cats, mm -hmm. Phantom, Les Mis, and he would say, those aren't our stories. That's not our music. <laughs> the, the, those aren't our people. Those aren't our characters. And he wanted to do something different. And um, what's amazing is that when he and I met, he wasn't ready to write a Broadway musical and I wasn't ready to produce one. And our relationship spanned, you know, it spanned six years. And, um, and it culminated with Rent. And uh, it's still upsetting to talk about because, of course, it only spanned six years because, as many know, he died of an aortic aneurysm yeah. uh, three hours after the dress rehearsal of Rent at New York Theater Workshop in 1996. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so I want to also say for all of you folks who are watching Tick, Tick, Boom, it's such a beautiful movie in the way that it is able to wrap um, the basic outline of Tick, Tick, Boom, the musical around a biopic about oh, Jonathan's yeah. life for yeah. just that moment in time, which Lynn did so, so adroitly. And it's such a, it's so beautiful. And, um, and, and so beautiful to see Jonathan come to life in that way, in that way as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577. 1019 is the number here on the phones. Donna on Twitter writes, heading to Donna Summer Musical tomorrow, my first real outing. I'm beyond excited to see live people on and off the stage, along with the beautiful Fisher. Uh, being a virtual teacher from home since the beginning of the pandemic has made me a little crazy, to say the least. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have a great time, Don. Let's go to Diana on the east side. Diana, what's on your mind? Well, good morning there. Thank you very much. And to Donna, I just bought my ticket yesterday for the Donna Summer. Yesterday. Uh, <laughs> You're going to. Oh, yeah, I'm going. I'm going. But what I wanted to say was that I saw Hamilton. I was delighted to be there. It was in the sixth row, maybe too close, because the music, the orchestra was so loud. And, of course, the actors speak very rapidly, so we couldn't understand what they were saying huh. and i thought maybe it's just me but then the people i was with they said no we can't hear it the music's too loud and then we were talking to people afterwards and they were all saying we thought it was just us but yeah the music was so loud <laughs> oh, no oh no so i want to go again i'm going again but i don't i don't know what has to be done me i don't know but it was just so loud and i really want to be able to hear what they're saying <laughs> <laughs> well diana i'm glad you called because we've got the producer here uh on on the line you know, I, I imagine that's a challenge is that, uh, you know, you're you're moving this thing around. It's being performed in really different places and they all have different acoustics. The Fisher is really different from from other theaters. 
Well, Diane, first of all, if you're going to go again, I'm so thankful you're going to go again. And um, what I want to say is, you know, many people who go to see shows like this have an interesting dialogue prior in which some friends say, listen to the CD first and read the lyrics because it's going to increase your appreciation. And others say, don't do it. So it all happens fresh. And certainly in the same way that so much of the great uh, rap and um, hip hop music that um, has been created over the last now almost 40 years, that's really almost how, you know, I mean, hip hop really does start <laughs> 40 years are. ago now. Right. Yeah, um, um, repeated listenings always bring more information because that's the nature of hip hop, right? Of rap music, that it, it, it comes so fast. So I'm thrilled you're going to go again. And my guess is that it is impossible for us to equalize every seat in a theater. So our sound designers go to different areas. And, you know, sometimes you're sitting in the front and actually it's a little, you can't hear it enough because the speakers are giving more to the back. And that's variability. And I thank you for your patience. And all I else can say is I'll bet you they were having the same conversation when um, folks in Greece were going to see um, Antigone um, in those big amphitheaters that didn't even have amplification yet. Yeah, yeah, right. Again, Diana, really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, let's go to Ken in Troy. Ken, I've got about a minute left, but uh, go ahead. Sure, real quick. Um, I'm uh -huh. wondering if the portrayal of Bob Dylan by Kate Blanchett and, and actually um, by a small black kid who, who I think was also intended to somewhat portray Robert Johnson in, mm -hmm. in uh, I'm Not There in 2007, was at all influential uh, with, with, uh, with Hamilton? That's a really great question, Ken, and I, I love I'm Not There, and I, uh, I, I thought Kate Blanchett uh, was astonishing in in that role, Jeffrey. I wonder if that was part of the the influence. I, of sure, idea uh, what, what it's a fascinating illusion. I, I think that every time an artist breaks the form and does something different, they're contributing to a landscape that that gets other artists to break the form. So, mm -hmm. though I don't think that that particular movie necessarily was in Lynn. Uh, Lynn's head or Tommy's head as they were casting, those are the expressions that help us to leap forward as artists. When yeah. someone, you know, breaks it and says, let's do it this way. So that was a good leap forward. And then, you know, Hamilton, another one. The other thing I wanted to say, because uh, Mr. Williams, the, the other caller had brought this mm -hmm. up about colorblind casting. What I mm -hmm. want to say about that is actually, it's very color conscious casting. Right. This was intentional. You know, we we're yeah. we're giving it we're giving it great thought and great consideration. Yeah. Um yeah. and and that is to the benefit of all. Yeah. Okay. Jeffrey Seller, producer of Hamilton. Great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for being with us. And maybe we will see you here in Detroit uh, in the fall for uh, the return of Hamilton. Oh, with, with, I can't, I, I don't, I never want to say I can't wait because I want to enjoy the next six months of my life. But yes, I look forward to bringing Hamilton to Detroit and coming for a visit over the holidays. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. Come back on Monday. 
We're going to talk about gas prices. I don't know if you've noticed, but they're going up uh, and have been vexing drivers as sanctions against Russia have taken hold. We'll hear what to expect next. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.